0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Let's give attention to God's Word. We're looking in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17-20. to 20. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount in the third person. The very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he moves to the second person after the Beatitudes and says, You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And now he moves to first person. And he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a jot will pass in the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May pray for us. Father, we come now under the word. May we come humbly, contrite, even trembling at your word. Or may we love this word. These are hard things often to understand, and we ask for the illumination of your spirit. We ask that we would see all that Christ has done for us and that we would love him more and cleave to him. We ask that you'd open our eyes, just as you did for the men on the road to Emmaus. Open our eyes, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we have before us in these verses 17 to 20, we have one imperative, one imperative, one purpose statement, one comparison, and two applications. So the imperative is verse 17a, the life purpose statement, 17b, the comparisons, verse 18, and the two applications are verse 19 and 20. So that's our outline. So let's start with the imperative. The imperative of the, of the text, do not assume, do not think, do not suppose, do not believe. Do not believe that Jesus is this Johnny-come-lately, the new kid in town who's come to undermine and change the moral law of God. Do not think that Jesus has come to do that. What we have here is a negative statement and a positive statement in verse 17. Jesus is making it clear what his mission is and is not. What well, it's not, the negative, do not think or suppose or assume that I've, I've come to destroy, to abolish the law or the prophets. Rather the positive statement is I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. You see, Jesus comes along, he's the new kid in town and he's probably being labeled already as a leader who was wrecking tradition. And Jesus is going to give a lot of corrections in this chapter. So if you look from, from verses 21 to the rest of the chapter, six times Jesus is going to say you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he's expounding the law of God. He's going to deal with the sixth commandment about you've heard it said about murder. And you know, all you got to do is, you know, don't don't murder anybody, and Jesus is going to say I say to you, don't even hate him in your heart. Then he takes the seventh commandment about lust and, and, and dealing with uh, divorce. And they're saying, well, we can divorce whoever we want, and as long as we don't commit the act of adultery, we're fine. And Jesus says, no, if you look with a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And so he's going to give some, some radical correctives. But what Jesus is, is wrecking is the oral tradition, not the moral tradition, because what's happened is, is the deconstructionist was not Jesus, it was the Pharisees. They were the ones that were adding to and taking away from the true intent of the law of God. And Jesus is the very one who gave the very laws to Moses. Where did they, who, who was the author of scripture ultimately? Jesus, he's the word of God. Jesus isn't trying to be novel. He isn't in collision with the Old Testament. He's in concurrence with it. And the Supreme Court, so to speak, in in that day and age of the the authority ultimately rested with the law and the prophets, and Jesus is appealing to them. And he's saying, I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them, or a better translation, I think, is is to complete them. I've discovered that I like a, a certain TV show. And I, I'm, I'm a sap at heart, so I watch this TV show and I almost cry, I cry every time I, I watch the show. And the show is Undercover Boss. And some of you have heard me refer to this before. But I, I just love the show. I'm a sucker, okay? Be- why? Because the gospel's in every show, right? So here's how, here's how Undercover Boss works will have a powerful, successful, wealthy owner or CEO of a company or even a mayor. Recently, I watched one of the mayor of Pittsburgh. And the mayor of Pittsburgh is now picking up trash and he's working with the parks and recs to cut down a tree. And, And anyway, this powerful person, influential, will disguise himself. And instead of being over his employees or over franchises, he or she will humble themselves and they will take the form of a servant and they will submit to the lowest level of entry work in a company. And they typically discover all sorts of problems in management and outdated equipment or techniques and and sometimes they get found out, they get recognized. And they usually see some amazingly gifted people who are good at what they do But they often have some type of hard luck story of misfortune. You discover that most people aren't doing blue collar work because. This is what they sought out to do. You hear their stories. And sometimes the CEO will encounter bad employees who are terribly abusive to workers, cheating the company or undermining management, and they have to be dealt with. And I love at the end when he re- the big reveal comes and they get fired. You know, you see retribution, right? So retribution comes to the wicked, but to the good, they're rewarded. And they're they're. Often just blown away as the CEO will will recognize their hard work and and will bless them with incredible generosity. And then they just stand there and they're 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 seeing this CEO that they thought was, you know, this and usually they're they're not very good workers when they're down in the, the low level, like the guy, this whole waste management. Program of all of these things gets fired because he's not fast enough picking up the trash. And so he's the head of waste management, yet he gets fired because he can't even pick up the trash fast enough on the hillside. I just find it hilarious. Well, what you, what you see that's similar to this text, but, but different, okay, is typically the CEO who takes on these jobs. You know, they're driving a forklift in the warehouse, they're running a cash register at the store, they're cooking food at the restaurant, making sales calls. They're usually not very good at it, and they have to have help. They have to have somebody who's much better teach them how to do these jobs, and then they interview them, and they talk about how this guy's not very good, or she's not real good at this. Well, that's, that's something that's not true in this text, You see, in Jesus' mission, he is the CEO of the universe. He goes undercover, veils his glory, and he's born under the law to redeem those under the law. And Jesus does this not by bumbling and fumbling the law of God. He says, I came not to destroy it, but to complete it. He didn't come to dismantle it, discard it, dissolve it, disunite it, overthrow it, annul it, tear it down, loosen it, do away with it. None of that. Rather, he comes to bring it about, make it come true, accomplish it, and finish it. R.T. France, who's a good commentator, says that Jesus is bringing that to which the Old Testament looked forward to. His teaching will transcend the Old Testament revelation, but far from abolishing it, is itself, it's intended culmination isn't that what you saw in reading luke 24 the whole chapter is that jesus is saying these are the things about me you see the word fulfill is a very important word it is a big theological word in matthew is it not Because if if, if we've been going through Matthew now and we keep seeing at all these major events in Jesus' life, Matthew will stop and throw in the fulfill at his birth. Well, that was to fulfill Isaiah 7.14, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. When you get to chapter two, and Jesus escapes to Egypt, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son, Hosea 11.1. When the young children are killed in Bethlehem, Matthew inserts, this was fulfilled to spoken what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, that a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. Jesus then comes back and lives in Nazareth. And we're told that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, that he shall be called a Nazarene. At Jesus' baptism, he says to John Baptist, what does he say? This is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' ministry beginning in the Galilee of the Gentiles, we're told in Matthew chapter four that this was to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said had spoken that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. When Jesus was driving out demons and doing miracles and healing the sick in Matthew 8, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And when he heals the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath in Matthew 12, we're told that this once again was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And then on Palm Sunday, Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the the foal of a beast of burden, Zechariah 9.9. And when Jesus is dying on the cross, Matthew chapter 26, once again, he says, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of of angels, but then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? It's necessary. You see, we see in these verses what Jesus came to do and why. Very simply, he came not to destroy the law, but to complete the law, to fulfill it because none of us could. Jesus comes as the second Adam to represent humanity. He's the perfect undercover boss, and he's no longer in disguise. He's revealed himself. He came to fulfill the law for us. The Bible makes it clear in Romans that his one trespass led to condemnation for all men. One act of righteousness leads to justification, right standing with God and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We're sinners because of Adam and represented by him. By one man's obedience, though through Jesus, the many will be made righteous through one man's obedience. Romans 8 puts it like this. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. We couldn't do it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh now, but according to the spirit. If you look in your bulletin, I've got this classic quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor and then called into ministry in London, 60s, um, 1960s. He says this, the purpose of the law is not to arouse pity in us, nor is it merely some general display of the love of God, not at all, It is finally understood only in terms of the law. What was happening upon the cross was that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was enduring in his own holy body the penalty prescribed by the holy law of God for the sin of man. The law condemns sin and the condemnation that it pronounces is death. The wages of sin is death. The law must be fulfilled. God is forgiving us. Let us say so clearly, does not do so by deciding not to exact the punishment that he has decreed. That would imply a contradiction of his holy nature. Whatever God says, he must, must be brought to pass. He does not go back upon himself and upon what he says. Some of this isn't in your bulletin, I know. He, he has said that sin has to be punished by death and you and I can be forgiven only because the punishment has been thus exacted. In respect of its punishment of sin, God's law must be fulfilled absolutely because he's punished sin in the holy, spotless, blameless body of his own son there upon the cross on Calvary's hill. Christ is fulfilling the law on the cross and unless you interpret the cross and Christ's death upon it in strict terms of the fulfilling of the law, you have not the scriptural view of the death upon the cross. We are told in the big picture of scripture in 2 Corinthians one, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He is the telos of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you believe this morning? That's your righteousness. Horatius Bonar was a, a great writer and preacher and, and also wrote some great hymns. But he has this great quote from The Everlasting Righteousness that says this, both love and law triumphed on the cross. The one has not given way to the other. Each has kept its ground. Nay, each has come from the conflict, honored and glorified. Never has there been love like this love of God, so large, so lofty, so intense, so sacrificing. Yet never has the law been so pure, so broad, so glorious, so inexorable. There has been no compromise. Love and law have both had their full scope. Not one jot or tittle has been surrendered to the full. The one in all its severity and the other in all its tenderness. Love has never been more truly love and the law has never been more truly law. And so the question is, how are you made righteous this morning? My favorite question from the creeds is Heidelberg. Catechism question and answer to number 60. How are you made righteous before God is the question. And the answer in the Heidelberg Catechism is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me and having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them and even though I'm still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving of it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants to me and and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift Gift with a believing heart, that's the gospel. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to complete it for you and me, because otherwise it's not completed, not fulfilled. It's been broken by us daily in thought, word, and deed. Now we have a comparison that Jesus says in verse 18. He says, I truly, I say to you, and Jesus, and this is the word amen, by the way, in the original language. Jesus is the only one who can amen himself before he starts a statement, okay? Because of the authority of which he speaks. Amen, I say to you. You know, he's giving his amen because he speaks with authority. And he's saying until heaven and earth pass away. He's like saying not the, the least little dotting of the I or the crossing of the T would be the smallest little things in our English language. Well, here in the Hebrew, it was the iota or the jot. He's saying not any of these things are gonna pass away from the law until all is accomplished. You see, we should not discard or, or think, well, I just need to just read my New Testament. The Old Testament's not real important anyway. I don't understand some of it. So the reality is this, as J.C. Ryle said, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud and the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in the blade and the New Testament is the gospel in full ear. The saints in the Old Testament saw many things through a glass darkly. They all looked by faith to the same Savior and were led by the same. Spirit as ourselves, and these are no light matters. Much infidelity begins with an ignorant contempt of the Old Testament. Jesus loved the Word of God. Psalm 40, verse 8, where is quoted in Hebrews 10 about Jesus is a, is a quote that says, I, "I delight to do Your will, O God," and He's come to do that will perfectly of keeping the law. The psalmist in Psalm 119 is in love with the law, and Jesus was in love with the law. And when he was tempted, what does he quote? The law three times from Deuteronomy. Jesus said he he also appeals to his own words having the same authority as the words of the Old Testament. In Matthew 24, Jesus says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Just think about the authority of Jesus for a minute. Imagine you're at your coworker at your cubicle at his desk and he says to you, heaven and earth will pass away but my words shall never pass away. What would you do at that point? You'd laugh, right? Or you'd say, we need to get you checked out. You need, really do need a psych evaluation. But Jesus just says it because it's true. There is a better chance of the sun not coming up tomorrow than his word not being fulfilled or passing away. Jesus equates his words with the law and the prophets and Jesus says in John 10, 35 that the scriptures cannot be broken. And yet he's broken for us to fulfill those very scriptures. You see, if God was to alter his law This is a quote from Spurgeon. For God to alter his law would be an admission that he made a mistake at first. That he put poor and perfect man under too rigorous a regime and therefore he's now prepared to abate his claims and make them more reasonable. And some people think that God, you know, kind of switches these different plans throughout the Old Testament. Well, that that plan with Adam and Eve, well, that didn't work. Let's let's try Noah. Eh, that didn't work. Let's try Abraham. Eh, that didn't work. Let's try Moses. Eh, that didn't work. Let's try David. Nah, eh, that didn't work. And the idea is that God's just looking to try a new that's not what the Scripture teaches at all. Scripture teaches that these are all unified structure of promises, and they begin with Adam and Eve, and that, that one's gonna crush the head of the serpent, and then we're promised to Noah that he's gonna preserve humanity and he's never gonna flood the earth again. And then he he's makes the promise to Abraham that through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he makes this promise to David that one of your offspring is gonna be on the throne forever and they're all fulfilled. Where do they find their yes and amen? Sunday school answer, Jesus. You see, and so God hasn't changed his his strategy. But we we do call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, so we do have, there is something that's new about the new, and there's something that's old about the old. And when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? We are told what happened. The temple of the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning God was the one who tore it. And that was to have access into the presence of God in the holy of holies. Something did significantly happen that all of those things of the Old Testament that he's fulfilling and completing, they're all pointing, all those ceremonial laws. And we're told in Hebrews that we don't need those ceremonial laws anymore. We don't need the, the sacrificial system. The temple is torn in two, but the, the, the temple is then abolished and destroyed because Jesus is the temple. He is the fulfillment. But the moral law of God, His 10 Commandments, we know these things are still in effect today. You know, if you, if you say to somebody, well, it doesn't matter anymore about if, you, if you're, don't, you don't need to obey your parents anymore. Does any parent think that's, that's a good idea? It's okay if, if you murder now, that's okay. It's okay now to commit adultery. It's okay to steal. It's okay to bear false witness. It's okay to covet. Like we know innately, these things are still in place because they're repeated again in the New Testament. But all of these things in the Old Testament, the point of every story, the point of every regulation, the point of the ceremonies, the point of the bread, the point of the sacrifices, the point of the priest, the point of it all was to show us Jesus, the point of every prophet was to show us the ultimate prophet who would bring us the ultimate truth and the point of every priest was to point us to the ultimate priest who would lay down his own life. The point of every king was to show us the ultimate king who would heal us completely the Law, the Prophets, the Psalms, they're all about Jesus. And Jesus comes and says, my food is to do the will of my Father and to live out this Law for us, to complete it. But now that that has happened for us, does this mean that, that well, the Sermon on the Mount, this doesn't really, you know, this doesn't really have much relevance for us? Well, the reality is this, we are to live now the law of God. We are to delight in the law of God and the inward man as Paul says in Romans uh, seven. We're told in Romans 13 that love is now the fulfillment of the law. It's the, and, and we know from Romans three that, that, that the promise of the gospel does not make the law void. Paul says in Romans three thirty one, God forbid, yet we establish the law. And so law is now, you know, not just, uh, the idea is this. You're no longer to live the law as though you're trying to appease God or that it's now the source of your righteousness. It's the course, but it's not the source. The law is the track, but it's not the engine. The gospel is the engine. And what we need is the gospel, but as now we have the gospel and the spirit comes to live inside of us and now we're no longer trying to appease God because he's been appeased. Now we want to please him and there's a big difference between trying to appease and trying to please. Let me give an illustration. Some of you may have seen this on the news over the weekend. In Oklahoma, we have two women that are two young girls that were being pursued by the police and they have police video footage Does Anybody see this? Where the car caught on fire? They, they fled the police, these two young girls, and they hit a concrete barrier, they flew up in the air, and, and they tipped over on their side, and the car catches on fire. And so the very policemen that were in pursuit now are no longer in pursuit, they're now in a rescue. And so they get up on top of this car and they gotta get these two girls out because the car's on fire. And they have to break through the glass and the one officer puts the other officer up, lifts him up and drops him down into the car that's on fire and picks up these girls and hauls them out of the car and rescues them from imminent disaster. They were being pursued because they were violating the law and now somebody's rescuing them and saving them from death. What might that remind you of? The gospel, because that's us running away from God, running away from his law, and yet being apprehended by God and we were under imminent disaster of fire, of hell. And Jesus jumps in and rescues us and saves us. Now the story ended with these two girls are still in a lot of trouble. They went, they're they're okay, but they're still under arrest. Now I would love to know the end of the story for these girls because I would think and I would hope that they will be radically changed when they see the footage and know that we were gonna die. But these police officers broke through the window climbed down into the car, and saved us, I think I'm gonna live differently now. That's the idea for us, is that we were running away from the law, and now we've been pursued and somebody died for us, and now we're like, with that kind of love, and being loved like that, it's like the character from Les Mis, who's been set free by love. Jean Valjean was now a different person. We are different people now. And now we want to be and act like those as becomes followers of Christ. William Cowper put it like this, and he was a hymn writer in the days of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. And here's a hymn that's kinda lost its, its uh, there's a new tune that was put out by Indelible Grace, but it's called Love Constraining Obedience. And here's how the, the verses go. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, And to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. It's no longer a duty, it's the choice. He says, how long beneath the law I lay, in bondage and distress, I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Then all my servile works now were done, a righteousness to raise. Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His way, you see? You see, as as John Bunyan put it, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. The better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. And so now that he's given us the wings of the gospel, now when we get to these passages and say, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this, and it ends with be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, we are to run after God and we are to be a holy people and different. Now that that track has been laid and now this engine has come of the gospel and we we no longer need to say, well, I think I can, I think I can, and then it always ends in failure. Now we say by his spirit, we are given this Holy Spirit to walk now in newness of life. And Jesus takes his words very seriously in the Sermon on the Mount. We have two paths as we go towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we on of the Mount, you got two paths, two trees, and two foundations. And the one is leading to life and the other is leading to destruction. And you've got this good tree and a bad tree and the, the bad path and and the house. And and the whole point is is being doers of the word. And so as we are changed people by the gospel, we are now to live this out. And that's where we're gonna be going in weeks to come is now by the power of the gospel, we, are, we endeavor to live as new creatures now in Christ because of what he's done. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for the cross. We're thankful for Jesus our perfect righteousness, our only righteousness. Lord, you have much to say about how we're to live in your kingdom, and we pray that we would take those things seriously. That, Lord, we would show you how thankful we are by trusting you, by obeying you, by following you. And, Lord, we are grateful for the security that you have given to us this perfect robe of righteousness. We thank you for the deposit of your spirit guaranteeing what's to come. And we pray we would rest in that and bear much fruit. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.